Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. John, chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be, carried, uh, may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I shared this story once before, but I do think it's appropriate here. Um, I once went to court with someone to support him who, who was facing a, a charge on a felony. And so as we waited in the gallery for his turn, a man in an orange jumpsuit with handcuffs surrounded by bailiffs was seated in the defendant's chair. It was the sentencing of his um, conviction. And as the judge completed the sentencing, he asked him to stand. And as he stood, there were two things that were quite evident. First, he started trembling to no end. He just literally could not stop. Secondly, is that his bright orange jumpsuit from the waist down completely blackened because he had wet his pants. He was uncontrollable in his bowels. And when I saw that, you couldn't help but look at the judge and this person and feel sorry for him because for this man, this judge was all powerful and it was three strikes for him. So probably he was facing at least 20 years in prison and he was an older man. So probably that meant the rest of his life. It was quite, quite frightening for him. And it made me think of this idea of what it means to face this all powerful judge and to be convicted of guilt. In today's passage, Jesus is telling Nicodemus this same idea that the verdict is in. And it's by this phrase in verse 19, which says, this is the judgment. That phrase is paraphrased well by the idea of the verdict is in. It's not the verdict might come in or it will eventually come. It is here and now. And so Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus that when he has come, it means that there is a sentencing involved. And unless we see and understand what this means, we will be on the wrong <laughs> side of that judge. So I'd like to look at what Jesus describes as this verdict and the implications and aspects of it. First, he describes it in verse 19 as all works essentially are evil. In verse 20, all hate Jesus. And third, there are going to be some who do respond, who do act, who do live it out, but just some, according to verse 21. And so first we'll look at all works are evil in verse 19. Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There's nothing that reveals evil more than the opposite of evil. Pure goodness when exposed to evil, shines forth evil. Evil cannot hide. It will always be exposed. 
Now, here's the thing about evil is that evil is always hidden. It doesn't look evil. Paul describes Satan, the essence of evil, you might say, the messenger of evil, as a master of disguise. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul says, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. If you were to face Satan today, you would not be perhaps afraid of him. You might befriend him because he actually looks good. That's actually the worst type of evil. The evil that actually can disguise itself as good. And so I do think that so many of us have this wrong view of Satan. If ever Satan reveals himself as evil, it's because he's lost. But usually that's not the way he exposes himself. He doesn't come to you that way. He comes to you as one who looks very beautiful, kind, nice, merciful. Think of the mass murderer. Every time a mass murderer is finally caught, they, uh, the reporters often go to the neighbors and ask them about this man who was living right next to them, killing all these different people. And without fail, the response that you hear continuously from those neighbors is, he seemed so nice. And that's what evil looks like. It looks nice. It doesn't look evil. It's the worst type of evil. If you consider every dictator who has lived, Stalin, Idi Amin, Mao, Kim, Chavez, Pol Pot, you know, all of these men had one thing in common. They all started out by saying, we are for the people. And the masses looked at them and said, this is someone who's going to rescue us, who's going to deliver us, who's going to make life better for us. Every dictator starts that way. They don't come in and say, We're go I'm going to create concentration camps and I'm going to kill all of your families. I mean, that's not how it works, right? It's always, I'm for you. This is for you. When Jesus describes this idea in Matthew chapter 13, verse 26, with the parable of the weeds, he says that amongst the plants that are growing, the vegetables, the crops that are going to feed people, alongside them are the weeds. And weeds, they don't always look so bad. Actually, if you drive around right now, because of all the rain, you see a lot of weeds, but the weeds are beautiful. I mean, they're orange and yellow. That's what makes the flowers, the wildflowers. We call them wildflowers. And wildflowers grow wild and they expand and they're very quick at growing. And when they're on the hills, you say, wow, that's beautiful, but you don't want them in your gardens. You don't want them in your vegetable garden because if you're trying to grow tomatoes and cucumbers and squash, if wildflowers, those weed wildflowers come into that garden, there will be no tomatoes and cucumbers and squash. It will only be those flowers and you cannot eat those flowers. So the smiling face disguises the hateful heart. The disciple who says, I'm going to follow you, betrays Jesus with a kiss. The upright and moral person is filled with anger and violence. Why is it that pastors who are preaching the gospel are literally simultaneously carrying out an affair with a member in the church? And you hear about it after it all comes out 
and you think to yourself, how could he do this? And how could he actually preach that way? I feel convicted, and yet he's hypocritical in absolutely everything because of evil. Evil always looks good. It's just how the nature of evil. And so Jesus, when he came into this world, he came to expose that type of evil because when evil confronts pure goodness, evil cannot hide. There's always exposure. And so even if there's a smiling face, even if there's outward morality, the gospel of Christ, the cross of Christ, it always exposes that which is truly evil. There's no better illustration than when Jesus lived in this world. In Isaiah 53.3, Isaiah describes Jesus this way. The coming Messiah says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's not an exaggeration by Isaiah. Jesus was really despised I and mean, people hated him. Obviously, he went to the cross, so there's a real clear picture of what that hatred would manifest itself to be. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, disciples. How many times when Jesus lived, people plotted to kill him? Eventually, they would succeed, but it wasn't just these attempts on his life. Consider all that Jesus faced that we don't necessarily directly hear about in the Gospels. Because this is what Jesus did face. We hear about what was said against him, the different traps. But if you notice in the Gospels, it's always, and they were thinking this, and Jesus responds to what they were thinking. That happens numerous times throughout the Gospels that's listed. Now, the reason why it says that is because Jesus is God. If Jesus is God, he knows everything about a person. Consider that for a moment. You would not want to know what everyone is thinking right now. I wouldn't want to know. I couldn't preach anymore. I, I would be so bombarded with thoughts, some good, some bad, some thinking about the laundry that they left inside, you know, their laundry while it's still spinning. Did I lock the door? Oh, no, the stove is turned on. Oh, I work. What type of work? I mean, there's Jesus is constantly facing that. But you know what he was hearing and seeing? People who despised him, hated him. And this was ongoing. It's a life of absolute misery. He was, as Isaiah describes, a man of sorrows. And I don't think we can really appreciate that without delving into this idea that Jesus knew every single thought that people thought. Not just what they said, not just what they did to him, but their thoughts. There was no more man or woman more sorrowful than Jesus was in this world. And you can see now why. So when he would pass by people, people couldn't help but respond to him because he was the essence of perfect goodness and morality. And so wherever he went, demons would literally just jump out of people. They would froth on the ground. People would because this demon could not just simply hold still. You know, demons aren't impacted by people who care nothing for the Lord. If, if you were actually, and I've just on this trip, we saw one demon possession. Whenever a demon encounters a person 
who absolutely adores Christ and loves him, they cannot help but respond. How much more Jesus? Jesus is there, and whenever he encountered people, demons were forced to reveal themselves, not because he said anything, but they just came in contact with perfect goodness, and so they were exposed. When we were in Burundi, at the end of our trip, we were given deworming pills to take because the reality is when you are in some places around the world, sometimes parasites and worms get into your system. And so you need to get rid of those as soon as possible or else they take all the nutrients that you eat. Those pills do not let worms simply camp out in your really nice warm body. They're forced out no matter what. They can't sit there. Well, that's what Jesus does. He literally forces evil out of people. And evil has to react because when the light comes, even if you love the darkness, you will despise the light. And when Jesus exposes that darkness, the repercussions are shame and guilt. It's always been like that from the beginning of Adam to today. When Adam and Eve took the fruit and said, we're God, you're not God, we're gonna depend not on you, on me. I'm gonna determine for me what is good for my life, and they took that fruit. The first thing they did is they felt naked. There was shame, there was guilt. And so when God says, where are you? They're hiding, they're hiding. And that's the essence of sin and evil, is that sin and evil always causes you to hide, to hide from shame, to hide from guilt. Now, the Holy Spirit, he does cause guilt. John chapter 16, verse eight, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. God wants you to feel guilt, but that guilt is not supposed to cause you to run in shame and hide. It's supposed to cause you to confront your sin and to repent and to say, I want to change. I want to I want to follow Christ. I don't want to go my own way. When Jesus came, he shines the spotlight of his moral perfection on everyone around him, and they had to respond. There was no neutral ground for anyone who encountered Christ. You either were going to repent and turn and follow, or you were going to harden your heart and say, I, get, I want nothing to do, do with you, Christ. And they will become harder and harder, or as the Bible says, describes it as a person who is stiff-necked, sets their face like flint. They are so hard where they're seared of conscience that their, their brain, their conscience is literally burned and they have no desire for God. As we see in chapter four, when the Samaritan woman encounters Christ, she has to deal with her sins. You know, Jesus doesn't let you just go and sort of live neutrally. He says, either you're gonna follow me or you're gonna turn away, but there's nothing in the middle. And the woman follows, but Judas doesn't. Pastor Donald Barnhouse tells a story of the time he was speaking to a group of young women at a college campus. A freshman came up to him to confront Dr. Barnhouse. and She was so angry after this message of the gospel that he had preached. When Dr. Barnhouse heard her, he realized that there is something amiss with this person. She has heard this message before. And so he asked her, have you been raised in a Christian home? And she admitted she was. When he asked, when did you reject Christianity? 
she responded this past November. When he asked, tell me what happened in October, she broke down in tears because it was at that time she had sinned sexually and felt so ashamed she didn't think Christ could accept her. And so she instead ran away as far away from the Lord as she could to the point where she became an angry critic of Christ. After counsel and prayer, she eventually did turn back to the Lord, recognizing that Jesus did love her, was pursuing her. And that's exactly what happens when we sin. Our rebellion, our hardness, our anger towards Christ flows so often out of hidden sin. If you see someone really hardened against Christ, probably if you examine deeply into their lives, you will see someone who has perhaps sinned and hidden that sin from everyone. They don't want to be known. Like a tumor that is hidden in our body, we have, there are all sorts of symptoms that come out. You can't hold it in. The tumor eventually will make its way out. If you go to the doctor and the doctor will say, you know, we need to do a CT scan to determine if something's there. And if you say to, your, to the doctor, I don't want to do that because I don't want to hear terrible news. And he says, but you need to, you must do this. If you do not, you're just delaying that which could eventually kill you. And you say, no, I don't want to hear terrible news. I'm not going to do that. And so rather than going through the CT, you decide just going to put up with it. But what happens slowly but surely that tumor grows. It takes over other organs. It consumes your body to the point where eventually you lose even your life. Just because you decide I don't want to hear this news doesn't mean that the tumor stops growing. And spiritually speaking, it is the same thing. The Holy Spirit is the CT of our souls. He reveals the darkness of our hearts. Because only when we see that there really is something wrong will we finally come to a place where we can actually experience healing. Simply denying it does not change the fact that something is there and it will take your life eventually. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Perhaps one of the greatest dangers a Christian faces, not a non-Christian, but a Christian, is that they think that they are righteous, not sick. That they think that Jesus came not to heal someone like them, but rather to heal that person out there who would never come inside a church. Commentator William Hendrickson notes that Insects hate the light and scurry away from it, but believers resemble beautiful houseplants which turn their green parts toward the window and the light of the sun. Christians, believers, we do not run away from our sin. We are always recognizing that instead we need a savior. We know that Jesus has come to deal with our sins. We don't turn away from sin we actually turn towards grace and recognize that we need Christ above all else. Rather than denying that we have works of evil, we admit 
that our works are evil and we admit that Jesus died for our evil and we desire to deal with our sin and repent of it regularly. Christians are not less sinful than non-Christians. Christians know they are sick and need a physician. And that is what defines us. What defines us is our absolute need for Christ. And until we get to that place, we will not only fail to know how to rightly and graciously encounter people in our world, but we actually won't actually understand ourselves. So first realize that all works are evil and Jesus has come to deal with that. Second is this. Jesus says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Now there are some words there that really are pretty stark. One is that everyone, everyone who does wicked things. And if you consider your own life and your own heart, who amongst us has not done wicked things? And by doing wicked things, we're not just talking about the physical action of it. We're talking about the thinking of it. We're talking about the, the, the heart of wicked things. So if everyone who does wicked things, which pretty much means every person in this room, Jesus says, this person hates the light. And who is the light? Jesus is the light. He's the light of the world. So we cannot say that, well, we were never once enemies of God. If you doubt this, listen to what Paul says in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No, not one. So Paul says in Romans 7.19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. You want to do what's right. You're committed to do what's right. You believe with your heart this is what is right, but yet you still do the opposite of it. So whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, we all face this battle, this struggle, and in this way, we still do wicked things. And in this way, it reveals perhaps, I have no desire for Christ. So then why do we even follow? Because of what Christ has done for us. I mean, that's our only hope. It's not going to be because we try hard. We will ourselves. It is because God has done the work of saving us. He's rescued us. He's brought us home. He's welcomed us. He's adopted us. And he loves you and he gave his life for you. Only when we see this, though, will we actually have a desire to be more gracious to people. Because suddenly, you know, actually people aren't, any much worse than myself. Now, I know you read things, you read the news, and you say, but, but Sam, you know, there I know a lot of evil people. But we cannot go down that road because to do that is to go down the road of the Pharisees. The Pharisees continuously de determined that there were prostitutes and tax collectors, and then there were the morally righteous then. And they constantly did that. And by doing that, they could not see Christ as savior. They didn't worship him. They didn't adore him. They didn't love him. Instead, they despised him because he was trying to say at the base core foundational level, you are the same at your hearts. And until they recognize that, they would never turn to Christ. Jesus exposes these works. What are the works? Not just murder, but the heart that does murder, which is the angry heart. 
Matthew chapter 5. It's not just the one who has an adulterous affair, but the heart that is lustful, that longs for an adulterous affair. Jesus says that he didn't, when he came into this world, he didn't just look at prostitutes. He looked at the lustful hearts of the religious leaders who were hiding behind their hypocritical morality. See, that's the thing, is that when the Pharisees were talking about the prostitutes and tax collectors, he knew their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. And so when he looked out, he saw the same people. One just looked a certain way. In fact, this is how he describes it in Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So Jesus, because he could see our hearts and see their hearts and see everything, when he looks at so-called sinners and then he looks at the so-called moral people, good religious people, he doesn't just see the outward actions. He sees exactly what their hearts are and he says, they look exactly the same. We look the same. And until we're willing to admit that, we'll never turn to Christ. It's not just the irreligious people who need Christ. It's the religious people who need Christ. And we will never understand the gospel until we see we are no different at the core. And we need Jesus. And Jesus, when he came to this world, he shines that spotlight on all of us. And you're either going to be like a, a scurrying insect hiding away, saying, no, not me. This is, you don't want to be known. You don't want to be seen. Or you'll be like the house plant that as soon as you see the light, you t- yield towards it and say, I want to change. Lord, help me to change. I need to reveal my heart, my life. I need to confess sin, and we do it towards one another. I need to be known. So that's what happens. When Jesus comes into this world, people hate Jesus. Every one of us has at least one time. And some in In all of us, in some way, when we sin, we're acting as one who hates him. We don't actually hate him because we're in Christ, but sin is actually an action towards that end. Lastly is some, though, do act on the truth. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is very similar to last week where I talked about how believing is of the mind, heart, and hands. That is to say that there is a natural outflow, expression, fruitfulness of someone who believes in Christ. Every good tree bears good fruit. Faith without works is dead, as James says. But when there is true faith, there is a fruitfulness, a work that is produced that the Lord knows to be true. Not everyone else knows, but the Lord knows. Whoever does what is true based on God's word, truth is that, comes to the light, follows Christ, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In verse 14, if you can recall from a few messages ago, when the Son of Man is lifted up, like Moses lifting up the bronze snake, so that anyone who's bitten by the snake, if they lift their eyes to the snake, they will be healed. But they have to lift their eyes. It's not just, Uh, I can be healed without doing anything. There has to be a response of faith. The response of faith is God does the work and I respond. 
And as we respond, as we look, we say, I want to change. I want to be different. And so the response has to be there. That's why when we come, it's just not enough. Doing something for God is not enough. It has to be that the Lord does the work to change our hearts. And it's not going to be anything we significantly do. It's what's taking place internally. And that is yielding ourselves to Christ. That's admitting that we are a sinner, that we need Christ. Whenever we act upon our own righteousness, our own will, our own determination, apart from God and say, God, I don't need you in my life. I'm gonna do things on my own. When someone calls you out to that and says, my friend, I'm concerned for you. I haven't seen you at church in so long. And I feel like your heart is getting hard. There is a hiddenness that instinctively comes when people speak into your life. If it's, you know, I know I've, their marriage is struggling, you go and say, I'm really concerned about you and I want to care for you. If we're not open, but our instinct is defensiveness, self-justification, this feeling of how dare you speak to me like that? You know, that anger that comes is a hiding. It's trying to push distance so that no one can speak into this hidden heart. And when we do that, we are far from Christ. If someone actually loves you enough and cares for you enough to actually be willing to speak into you, risking even separation, because as you all know, you can be in a group where you say, let's keep each other accountable. And how many of us have been in that type of group? And then when you actually do the work of accountability and say, hey, my friend, I'm really concerned for you. And suddenly they say, well, how dare you speak to me like that? That anger is a distancing. It's a hiding. And there are so many different ways we hide, not from that person, but from Christ himself. We don't want to be known. We don't want our works exposed. We don't want our sins to be absolutely out there for everyone to see. Instead, we want to look like a whitewashed tomb. Someone who is externally beautiful, but inside is nothing but deadness, death. Augustus Toplady, he writes in his hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Can we get to a place where we can actually say there's nothing that I have that is righteous in me, nothing. And when you're in that place and you, then you're clinging to the cross, it's at that point that people see, wow, you're actually not so different than me. That's when the gospel shines, is when, you, when people around you realize that this person is so enamored by Christ that that's all I see in them. And it's not based on morality, but it's just simply their need for Christ, their need for Christ. That need and desire is what changes people. Augustine, when he wrote his confessions, St. Augustine, before he turned to Christ, he was absolutely in moral decay. And this is what he said to the Lord. He prayed this prayer, Lord, make me good but not yet. I'm too fond of this. I love this. I like it. You know what he loved so much? He had a mistress. 
He was ha having all sorts of, um, he was just partying up. He wanted to have every sort of fleshly desire lived out. And so he had this one woman that he loved, and he didn't really care for the woman. He cared for the sexual relationship of that woman. He was stuck to that. And he was saying, I don't want to give this up. Not, I will follow you, Lord, but not yet. Not yet. And that not yet is coming to the Lord with something, saying, Lord, instead of Augustus Toplady saying, nothing in my hand, it's, all right, Lord, I have time and some money. I'll give that to you. And, but don't ask me for this. All of us have something. Something that is not yet and not this. What is your not yet and not this to God? Is there something in your life? If someone were to come up to you and say, can I talk to you about your children? An area where I think there is a concern about your kids and I really wanted to share this with you. Would you be angry by that? Or would you accept it? Would you be defensive? Would you say, how dare you talk to me? That's, those are my kids. Because if that's the case, you know, it's probably saying a lot more about our lack of understanding of our need for Christ because we still think it's my reputation, my needs. For so many of you who are in this, I mean, we're in constant phases of always um, trying to build our status, our reputation. It's a constant temptation. I've shared this numerous times with different people is that in your life, you will face all sorts of crossroads. It happens at every stage. So if you're a parent, and you're parenting young children, you'll face about anywhere from, I would say about five major crossroads. And then in the high school years, another five. And then in the college years, another five. And you could just keep on taking that. And what I mean is this, is that there, and I, I've spoken this to my own children, is that there are going to be times where you need to pursue the Lord and God has given you gifts and so you pursue them. But along the way, there is going to come a crossroad that says, are you going to follow Christ or me or yourself? It might be, you know what? You need to take this class and forget about going to church on Sunday. If you just take this class, you'll get your SATs and you'll get a 1600. And that will unlock that door to go there. But in order to do that, it's okay to miss a couple of weeks of Sundays. It's no big deal. It, it'll, you'll make itself back up some other time. And that same high school student and a parent going along and saying, you need to do these things, by the time they hit college, will say, there's a big final exam on Monday morning. And you're a little behind because you procrastinated by hanging out with your friends all week. And so you decide, you know what? I don't think I re you know, the Lord will understand. Just one Sunday, no big deal. I mean, I, I promise you, Lord, I will be there next week. But that little compromise, it sounds like nothing. But you make that choice the next Sunday, it gets a little harder because another exam comes along or some other internship comes along. And then suddenly you're making another choice of, you know what, the Lord, he'll understand because he wants me to succeed. Then you get, you graduate college, go to your 
you know, your single years. And now it's, you need to put in the time. Your boss is asking you to pull in a lot of time, and so it's going to take up your weekends. You're not really going to have to spend any time of fellowship with believers who are going to love you and point you to Christ. Instead, it's put in the hours. Just put in the hours. It's okay. You don't need, eventually you'll catch up to the Lord until you get married. Then you get married, same thing happens. And then children come along. When children come, Lord, you understand, I'm tired. I'm a little sick and it just gets easier and easier up until retirement. Wait till retirement. Then I'll really follow you. Then retirement comes along and it's your body is aching. Chronic pain. You're taking, you have the pill box, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. You know, all 10 pills are going in each day. And it's, Lord, you understand. It's my body's broken. And then death. And then the verdict. The verdict. Are you wasting your life and choosing not yet, not this, Lord, so that I could just get a 1600 MSAT to get into this school, to get into this job, to get in, marry this person, to have this child, this many children, to have this career path, so that once I get that career path, and then I can retire well, and then I'll really follow you, and those crossroads that you are taking over and over again, slowly your heart is getting harder and harder to Christ. And you will not follow him. You will turn away from him. Not just you, but your children, because they're watching you. And they've seen your road, and they say, well, if he's taking that road, I'll take that road. And then the next generation, the next generation. We talk about generational sin. What it really is is a watching. Every child is watching their father, their father. And they're seeing a father who has taken this route, and they say, the not yet route, not this route. And so it becomes a generation, a family, decades of verdicts, guilty, guilty, guilty. You do not want to go down that road. You know, by God's grace, Augustine, that wasn't the end of his story, the not this, not yet. Eventually, he did see it. And he said, I don't want this anymore. I want life. And so, for those of you who perhaps have believed in a lie, the lie is someone is going to fulfill me. Some career path is going to fulfill me. Some status is going to fulfill me. Some school, academic record is going to fulfill me. It's a lie. Jesus was despised so that you would not be despised by the Father. When you see God face to face, if you're in Christ, he will not despise you. You are accepted. You matter. You are significant. You are loved. You are welcomed. He gave everything so that you would live. May this verdict of not guilty because Christ has borne it for you, be for you. But do it today. Let's pray together. Father, I recognize that there is something in all of our hearts just don't want to trust you. It's why we still sin. We still struggle. 
But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we take this bread and wine today, we do so remembering that there is nothing in us that is righteous on our own. But in Christ Jesus, we are perfectly righteous. So we don't have to hide. We can, in fact, admit that we need a savior. We can confess our sins to one another. And we, we could be confident of the fact that we are righteous forever in Christ. And so that actually frees us to fruitfulness. For those who have never trusted in you, Lord, today, help them then to see that you are life eternal. You are the hope. That they're striving after things that will never satisfy. As we'll be learning soon about this woman at the well who believed that whatever she was experiencing and feeling was everything until she encountered you, Lord, and you showed her that you are the living water from the well that never runs dry. Pray for those who have not placed their hope in you, Jesus. Would you turn their eyes towards you, that they would lift their eyes and see that their help comes from you alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.